Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 251. And with that, we'll give a shout out to Abby Wambach, who scored her world record 184th international goal in her 251st cap for the United States. The goal came against Costa Rica in the second game of the 2015 Victory Tour. So, one long Women's World Cup chat from France, this time with my Woso pal Dan Laletta of Equalizer Soccer. We discuss both the USA-France quarterfinal and the USA-England semifinal, and also rant a bit about the recent outcry around UEFA's lack of a separate Olympic qualifying tournament. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Dan Laletta from Equalizer Soccer to talk about, I don't know, Dan, what should we talk about? I mean, it's not like there's a lot of women's soccer going on right now. No, not too much. I think there's a World Cup maybe going on. Oh, that's why we're in France. That's why we're in France. We're in France. I I lost track of where I was. (laughs) Well, first we were in Paris um, and you got to watch a game as a spectator for the first time in who knows how long. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, USA France quarterfinal. Um, you know, generally I don't mind watching games as a spectator, but the thing about this particular game was that the French fans were off the charts. Incredible. And when the warm-ups were going on, it looked like, wow, this is really going to be a pro-US crowd. And maybe right. there were more American people there than and then French fans, but like like when they started doing the anthems, and got mm-hmm. ready for the whistle. It was like the crowd, like insta filled, and it was all the French people that came in late, and they were they were loud. And after Renard scored that goal in the what eighty first minute, whatever it was, uh-huh. it's about as loud as I've ever heard a sporting event before. And I was really anxious to see what would have happened had France equalized, but it didn't happen. And yeah, especially good, game. good, good anytime, great, great, great spectacle. Anytime American Outlaws started a chant, it seemed like the France fans stood up and kind of countered with Allez Absolutely. les Bleus or singing the national anthem or, yeah. Yeah, the impromptu national environment. anthem was, was pretty unbelievable. And it was a good atmosphere for USA-England as well, but it didn't compare to USA-France. Well, and, and having been at both games in the stands now, I, I wonder if uh, – being at Parc des Princes in, in, in Paris kind of aided that that matches ambiance because it's much older stadium. So we were so tightly wedged into those seats and even getting to the stadium, you're walking through pretty narrow streets and, and, and pathways. It was a very strange experience compared to last night going to what's what a two, three-year-old venue, uh, which has, you know, very spacious walkways and every, seats has a great sight line, but it does change the the feeling of ambiance. Yeah, the modern stadiums are very nice, except that the game atmosphere, sometimes they struggle to kind of come to that middle point between you don't want to be squished in with everybody. You don't want to be right. in those rows that are like 25 seats long and there's no way out yeah. if you're in the middle. Yeah. But at the same time, that also creates more of a um, an intimate environment and it can, uh, yeah, it can boost the energy in in the place. So it's, uh, it's tough when you build a new place. And I'm sure that did have something to do with it. I was up in the press row 
for the England game, which was part of the crowd. You know, it's outdoors, and but but it, you know, I don't have a sense of what the what the spacing and whatnot was like in the stands. Is because that's pretty high up, right? Yeah, we were pretty high up there. Well, back in in Paris for the quarterfinal, um, you know, did it surprise you? You know, looking at the USA lineup, uh, you know, that, that Lindsay Horan didn't start because my thought was when she didn't start against Spain was, oh, you know, Jill's holding her for the, the quarterfinal, you know, and kind of hedging bets on on that yellow. And, uh, you know, it's kind of returning to, you know, here's here's her home stadium from her first pro club. Yeah, I was surprised that Haran didn't start. And then I was even more surprised when you realized that the U.S. was kind of content in a way to sit back like Jill Ellis said, I think in the post game, we wanted to have France have the ball because France doesn't really want the ball, meaning that they prefer to counter. And I thought Haran over Rose Lavelle was a better option for that style of play. And I thought most of us agreed that that was Rose Lavelle's poorest game of the World Cup so far. So, yeah, I was a bit surprised. Uh, you never know if they're hiding some sort of an injury. Um, although it didn't seem that way from what we got uh, out of Haran and against England. But, um, yeah, you know, I think Jill Ellis likes to throw us little curveballs every now and again, and that that was one of them. But, it, you know, look, she's got four really good midfielders, and she plays a 4-3-3, so somebody really good is going to have to be sitting every game in that, you know, in that uh, format. Yeah, there's always going to be people sitting, especially like I was – thinking this morning about, I was like, Hey, yeah, we haven't even really seen Mal Pugh much, you know? And it's, it's like, yeah, there's just so much talent here. Yeah. And even in the England game, I thought maybe there would be an opportunity for Pugh to come on because Rapino obviously wasn't available. They said afterwards that maybe she could have come on for a PK. I don't know. That sounds like a, a bit of a stretch to me, but I thought maybe that would have gotten Pugh onto the depth chart, but it was Allie Krieger instead. Maybe if the game were different, it would have called for Mallory Pugh. I don't think there's any doubt that Pugh has dropped pretty significantly on the depth chart in really not that long a period of time because there was a time, it wasn't long ago, I remember, where Jill Ellis was putting Pugh in positions on the field where she didn't really fit just because it seemed like she was so talented that Ellis wanted her out there. And now maybe she's fallen behind a little bit. There are some that feel her development has uh, plateaued or even gone the wrong way in the time since she's joined the NWSL. So, you know, I think Pew is maybe the most interesting player on this team in terms of how her career and arc will go after the World Cup ends and she gets back in with her NWSL team. Because remember last year she was on that putrid Washington spirit team that is a whole lot better this year but she's really she hasn't been there a lot this year so it'll be I can't believe you used the word putrid oh come on that, that's being generous isn't it for that team um, no it's no it's just that choice that that, that particular choice you just of like, adjective. You just like the word yeah <laughs> yeah you know they're a lot better this year and I, I really you know I think most players go back and they kind of know their roles or they know you know, how good they are, what their future might be with the national team. I think Pew uh, is maybe the most interesting one to see what she goes back to at the club level. So other other thoughts on, on France. I mean, they almost staged a comeback. Uh, some may argue that they really dominated the second half, but, uh, you know, it seemed like Jill Ellis used a low block or whatever fancy term you want to want to use for it to, contain them. Um, and of course we can throw in the cliche of, 
you know, not having the mentality to, to finish the game off. Yeah, I thought that France was very much France in the game. I think I told you I thought the U.S. would go up one nothing inside of 10 minutes. I think it took four. Um, you know, you watch that game, and it's similar to so many other big games we've seen France lose over the years. If you just watch the game and you take the goals out and you take some of the other stuff out, then you would say, all right, France was the better team on the night. But you can't go down a goal early the way they did. And if you watch them attack, yeah, they dominated to some extent. The U.S. did drop into a five back and were kind of content, like I said, to sit back and, and absorb a little bit. But how many French attacks were thwarted by their own bad pass, by a bad touch, by, um, you know, maybe taking a shot too soon rather than, being patient, uh, you know, Eugenie Lesomer, uh, depending on who you ask, was anywhere between 80 and 100% healthy, did not have a really good match. Uh, they took a lot of free kicks where they weren't close to finding Wendy Renard. The one time they found her, they got their goal. I'm not saying that you find her every time. I'm not saying she scores every time, but there were just times where, yeah, I mean, I, look, I, can rem- I remember one of the early games watching at home, they had the France team – uh, in the tunnel waiting to come out and all the players are about the same. And then Renard literally is like a head and a half above everybody else. I mean, she's that dominant and that good on set pieces. And I don't think it's too far a stretch to say that you look for her every time when you send the ball in on a set piece. And I just don't think they were good enough at that. Um, you know, I just think that the, that game had an air of inevitability to it, you know, and it was right off the bat when France went behind and yeah, they fought hard and they dominated, but, uh, you know, they're going to have to be much better than that mentally going forward. So U.S. wins that quarterfinal, you know, survives Le Grand Moche, um, which means, of course, that France is will not qualify for the Olympics, will not participate in the Olympics next year. And Germany, Sweden, Sweden won. So Germany, the defending Olympic champ, doesn't go to the Olympics. Netherlands, Italy, Netherlands, uh, 2-0 victory. So either one of those teams would have been a first-time Olympian. So now Netherlands, 2017 Euro champion, and, and now a semifinalist, potentially finalist for this World Cup, uh, going to their first Olympics. Because the Olympics is just a 12-team tournament. Uh, Europe gets three slots because similar to the World Cup, but not quite the same as the World Cup, they try to do regional distribution. World Cup weights it a little bit more on competition, which is why in a 24-team tournament, Europe has eight slots, you know, but they don't have four (laughs) of the 12 for the Olympics. They have three, you know, and Africa still gets two. Uh, I think what uh, South America gets one and a half, something, something like that. We've got two, and I think Asia has the other half spot. Yeah, and it surprised me a little bit to see the outcry, if you want to call it that, of oh, how can Germany not go to the the Olympics or even more so. It's, it's not fair that France isn't going to the Olympics. UEFA, you need to have a qualifying tournament. And to hear players like former players like Julie Foudy and, and, and Weinbach, Wambach say, UEFA, you need to do something about this. And it just, with everything I know about the history of women's soccer, the Olympics, and, you know, how these tournaments came about, I think they are not seeing the trees 
for the forest to, to kind of flip that pun on its head that they're kind of blinded by Olympics. It's all about Olympics. And I think Americans tend to see the Olympics as end all be all, but within the soccer realm, FIFA has very deliberately always held the Olympics back. Um, because they run the, the the soccer tournaments for the Olympics because they don't want anything to be as important as the World Cup. And I, I think that's appropriate, both on the men's and women's side, uh, that the men's well, tournament is a U23 tournament. Yeah, we can have a big discussion about that Olympic-wise, about sports that have come in. Like, you know, if it's not the biggest event should it, you know, for your sport, should it be in the Olympics? But sticking to soccer, we live, as you know, in a hot cake world now and hot cake world in, what's a hot cake hot, world hot, hot cake world. everybody has everybody <laughs> has a hot take I mean, you know everybody wants everyone you know you see something you react to it and you no matter what happens your first reaction you're married to that reaction you can't be talked off it you can't be convinced otherwise you can't say oops maybe i made a mistake you see something you react to it and i think we are in this place now where we are trying so hard to build up the women's game and coming up this weekend, you've got the three finals on the same weekend, and you have uh, the president of CONCACAF said, oh, that was just a, a simple error. Well, no, it's not a simple error. Somebody doesn't know or doesn't care about the women's game. And in so many instances, these things are true. But you got to right. back up the truck here. When it comes to the Olympics, UEFA is not shortchanging anybody. The reason that UEFA is not holding real qualifying for the Olympics is because in October, maybe September, definitely by October, they start a full-on double round robin. Everybody goes in a group qualifying competition for Euro 2021. And the reason that they can't do an Olympic qualifying event sooner is because they're in an all-out qualifying double round robin. Everybody gets placed in a group qualifying procedure for the World Cup. So don't look at Europe and say you've got to do better for the Olympics why not look at South America? Why not look at CONCACAF, Africa, Asia? Oh, but it's everybody. Oceania, everybody. How about everybody else have real qualifiers for the World Cup? And if you really want to get the Olympics on even par with the men, then you have it as a U23 tournament, as you just mentioned. Now, look, does it have to be where the top three from the um, World Cup qualify for the Olympics? No, not necessarily. You could make it the top two and then have the next four or eight go into some tournament that you can have in January or February. And four years ago, they did that because there were four teams, I think, that lost in the round of 16. And rather than wait them, they put them all in a little tournament. And I guess Sweden right, right. came out of that. And then, you know, what happened after right. that was Sweden and the United States. But this is not your <laughs> way for holding back. So we got to relax, right? Just because something seems unjust, sometimes there are actual reasons behind it. And as far as fairness, it's totally fair that France didn't go. You know why? Because France knew from years ago, how do you get to the Olympics? You'd be one of the top three finishers in the World Cup. End of story. That's not unfair. It's a little harsh. I think an Olympics without France or Germany is a lesser Olympics than if they were there. But that's the way it goes. And, it, you know, it's supposed to be hard to qualify for these things, right? It's not supposed to be easy. That's why there's so much outcry against the men's World Cup going to 48 teams. It's supposed to be difficult to get into these tournaments and it will never, you know, a lot of the, it surprises me that so many people associated with us soccer, the players even are quote unquote, okay with the current world cup qualifying format. And, you know, it's cause it's kind of one of those things like we want to be the same, but Oh, those eight trips to central and uh, you know, central America maybe don't sound so appealing 
you know, if we have to do that just to get into the World Cup. So, yeah, I think we need to back up the truck on uh, UEFA Olympic qualifying. And one other, just one other point. I wrote a little bit about this for Equalizer. And I pointed out that there's a North Macedonia-Kazakhstan match coming up in October. Nice. And, like, no, nobody, nobody's going to care about that match, right? But they are in, they're both in Euro qualifying groups. So they're both going to play at least eight matches for Euro qualifying. Okay, Ecuador. Meanwhile, a, meanwhile all of our the World teams Cup are dark. Yes, Ecuador was in the World Cup in 2015, and I'm not sure they've played eight matches since then. Didn't qualify for the Olympics, went dormant for two years, came back in the South American Continental Championship, got eviscerated, and now they're not. I mean, I don't know if they have any plans to play again. So who's, who's growing the game more? The teams that have the North Macedonians and Kazakhstan teams playing eight games for qualifiers or South America, although South America actually does double jeopardy for the Olympics and World Cup, so that's an even worse example. But um, UEFA is growing the game better and stronger than any other confederation, and it's not even close. And you know what? U.S. might win this World Cup, but it was the U.S. and seven European teams in the quarterfinals. Well, Dan, you did most of my ranting for me, um, but I will add... (laughs) <laughs> but I but I will add, um, not only has UEFA really done their, their due diligence on the, the national team side, uh, but when you look at how strong the leagues are and having Champions League and then all these different countries have cup competitions as well. So you have, you know, the FA Cup, the Coupe de France, the Copa del Rey you know, uh, Copa d'Italia, all of those. So so these players are not only playing for their national teams in these qualifiers, they're playing their regular club. They, they're playing Champions League if they qualify. They're, they're in these cup competitions. So they're having high-level week-in, week-out competitions, uh, which you just don't see in CONCACAF. You don't see very much at all in uh, South America. Um, and then separate from that, you, we can look back and see uh, less than 10 years ago, UEFA gave 100,000 euros to every single member association. So that's 53, 54, somewhere around there, times 100,000 euros, specifically for women's soccer development. So that's when we saw Ireland start uh, a women's league for the first time, not fully professional but more funded and better run than they had ever had before. So we actually saw Ireland come really close uh, to qualifying for their Women's World Cup for the first time. I think they finished second in their group or third in their group. They were in the mix to the end. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that kind of thing. And I, I remember thinking about that last fall when we were watching CONCACAF qualifying and you had some incredible performances by some of the young Panamanians, especially 17-year-old Janice Bailey in goal. You know, remember all Americans are like, wow, she's amazing. And I'm thinking, how is she going to get to develop? Their their league in Panama just started. Um, the first year was a joke. Teams kept failing because they had to travel five hours each way for games and had to play in the middle of the day because it couldn't get fields. And right, you know, you're never going to get an N- with the rules. Yeah. You're never going to get an NWSL team to take on a 17 year old international goal. Right. Well, and NWSL shouldn't shouldn't have to. It's like Concacaf should. You know, CONCACAF should be, it's it's like, hey, this league needs help. We need to help Panama develop. Jamaica, not a single one of their players plays in Jamaica. Canada, not a single one of their players plays in Canada, except for the ones that aren't even college age. 
you know, so yep. it's it's kind of it's kind of sad to think that Canada still doesn't have a single NWSL team. Like I wouldn't expect Canada to have its own league. I I, I would see kind of uh, similar to MLS, where you know it's it's a U.S. Canadian league, but it's it, you know Mexico they're doing it on their own. That wasn't money from from FIFA or CONCACAF. That was Mexico doing it on their own. Yeah, but that's that, 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 that's my big point. It's like UEFA has. UEFA has done plenty and Olympics is not a path to women's soccer growth when it's such a restricted tournament. It's such a restricted event. It has to be done in three weeks, which I'm sure a lot of fans don't remember how rough that was in Brazil in 2016, where you played a game, traveled, rest day, play, travel, rest day, and right. long And it was really trips. hot too. Like kind of, it's been hot in France too, but it was very hot in Brazil, as I recall. Yeah. And 18 player rosters. And that's because that's not to be unfair to the women. That's the Olympics as a whole. When you have so many events happening together, they try to to restrict the total number of athletes because it's just a, a huge, huge event. And there's no, there's no um, bonus money. There's no award money related to the Olympics coming from the Olympics it, itself. And that's true for men's, women's. Right. And everything. that's what the European is. The, that's what Europe, that Europe has the world cup and the euros and they're both big deals and they both made them big deals. And it, you know, it shows the last euros was fantastic. And I'm yeah. sure the next one will be even better. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I would like to see in the next cycle or two, uh, like you mentioned, the Olympics switch to a youth format for the women. Um, and U23 would be perfect because the, the same reason they made the men's U23, where you already have a U17 World Cup, you have a U20 World Cup, U23 kind of falls in that, that gap of, okay, just, you know, is there anybody who hasn't developed? It's not it's not like they play as regularly as the others, as U17, U20, but it, I think, especially on the women's side, that would be a great way to, to offer this additional developmental path, especially right. and for there Americans. Are overage players. Those, those players can... who, yeah, yeah, the, those oh, players right. who didn't get a chance to to develop while they were in college. I mean, to but you to can also send two. Team. You can also send. I don't know if they went up to three. It's two or three players that are over the U23 line, so you can yeah. send. Yeah. You know, somebody to, for whatever the reason you might have to send that player either to fill out the team or to have to get them a send off. Yeah. Or what have you. Or, you mentioned Mexico. Or because, or because Messi wants to play on the Olympics or because Brian McBride wants to play on the Olympic team. But, but yeah, it, I, exactly. I think it's a nice balance of, hey, we know this thing is, is important. Um, we've still seen the challenge on the men's side that clubs don't want to release them, uh, players for the World Cup because Olympics does not fall in a, in a FIFA window. Right. You know, so that, that's well, a whole other issue. You mentioned Mexico. I think they're the most interesting team maybe to watch in the next cycle because their national team has fallen on some very hard times. They do have this league that has started up. And we'll see if they can qualify for 23. But again, what do they have to do between now and they'll probably have that tournament in October or November of 2022 what does Don't Mexico forget Olympic qualifying. Olympic qualifying January. All right, Olympic qualifying yeah. coming up, which in which I think we get two spots, so it'll be a big upset if Mexico yeah. gets one of them. But yeah. what do they have between then and twenty two? They're gonna have to do it on their own. They're gonna have to schedule friendlies. It's not that easy to do. They're, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I think in every four years come big women's CONCACAF tournament would be fantastic. And, you know, qualify in and 
and all that getting stuff. Back, and I think getting we're back, getting back to a real world. That's thing. okay. But yeah, but getting getting back to a real you know women's Concacaf Gold Cup. Uh, but yeah, that's a we can continue that that discussion further on. But bottom line, people, UEFA is not the problem. <laughs> no, <laughs> all right, UEFA so let's, is not the problem. Yeah. So so last night. Um, what I think attendance was 53 something um, at the, the stadium right. early on, uh, you know, two year old stadium, lovely place. So much more space for my knees. It was great. Um, every seat, a good, good seat, beautiful grass fields. Um, and another big match. Um, I don't know what we could call this one instead of, you know, Le Grand Mache too, but uh, I was pleased. Way better match that, than the that, France match in my opinion. Oh yeah, and and I was pleased that there were many more England fans there than I than I expected because being around Leon just the first day it seemed like you're only seeing Americans and maybe it's because the Americans are more about wearing their stuff, you know. Right. The Plus, it's a little arrive. bit more um, of a and, and it also had to be a little bit more of a planned travel where England fans could have said, "Oh, right. we're in the semis. Let's hop on a train and buy some tickets." Right. For disappointed French fans. Right, but it but it was great to see uh, all the different jerseys, and also see the jerseys for like France, Australia, Germany, you know, um, all all those fans. They're even seeing. I, I saw North Carolina Courage. I saw Portland Thorns. I think I saw every Premier League jersey. Um, but what what were your thoughts on this game, especially seeing that Kristen Press got got the start and uh, Haran did start this one. Well, the press start and the press goal was, was, I mean, that's the story from the U.S. perspective on the night. That and the fact that I think a couple things. I think, you know, press has had such an up-and-down career on the national team over the years. but And I do think it has been fair that in the biggest moments or against the best competition, she's been okay. She hasn't been anything special. She can light up uh, teams at the bottom end of CONCACAF tournaments, but she hasn't been spectacular uh, in big moments, and she got the start. I don't know when she knew she was going to start, but you know, you'd have to certainly think that if Rapino was healthy, Rapino would have started this match. And uh, less than ten minutes in, press scores that goal with her head, no less, which is not necessarily what she's known for. I think she, I didn't think she had a great game. Otherwise, a couple of moments here and there, but when you're a striker and you score a goal, then that's considered a great game. And I think that was the story. Uh, the Alyssa Nayer story, I think, has been kind of bubbling up throughout the tournament. Uh, you know, night, you know, anytime you save a PK, especially when it's to equalize a World Cup semifinal in the 85th minute, uh, that's a great save. That said, it was a horribly taken penalty by Steph Houghton. Uh, but the other story for the U.S. is I think sometimes U.S. mentality is overstated. I don't think it's been overstated in these last three games. Um, you know, they easily could have lost to Spain. France, again, were probably better. And England had how many different opportunities in this one to change the game? You know, if not for VAR, they equalized 2-2 and Ellen White got called offside. You know, on the flip side, VAR awarded them the penalty, but a well-taken penalty that came tied, very likely headed to extra time. Um, you know, Nayer made a great save, um, I think, on Walsh right after... The U.S. took the lead two to one. Um, you know, I think U.S. mentality and that quote winning DNA has really been on display at this tournament. Again, I think that's sometimes overblown, but I think it's really been the case for the last three games. So those are my three stories, press Nair and U.S. winning mentality. But globally, I think 
you know, you look at England, they're on the spot, 86th minute, 85th minute chance to tie it. You got to make that and send it to extra time. And that second Ellen White goal, um, I couldn't see from where I was. Uh, was that offside? Yeah, I couldn't see it either, but we had a TV for replays right next to us. And as soon as I saw it once, I said, that's that's coming back. So not a big deal. I also, I love the fact that on the penalty that they called on Sauerbrunn, if mm-hmm. you noticed when the ref came out and that was one of those weird, cause I still don't understand. Like if you think you might look at it, go to the monitor, if you get there and they tell you <laughs> upstairs, it's fine. Go back. But, um, the, as soon as she pointed to the spot, the U S players went over to where the, you know, the lineup around the circle, they almost danced over like, okay, whatever penalty. Let's see what happens. You know, we're going to just play on. And the England players almost look more hesitant to go over there than the U.S. players did. And I thought that that said a lot about maybe where both teams are at this point in time. Well, it, it was there's so many angles of drama, you know, with the, uh, you know, Phil Neville saying, oh, they 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 were in our hotel and, uh, you know. Yeah, he joked about that after the game, by the way. Yeah. He said he has a lot of respect for Jill Ellis and she can have my hotel now. <laughs> and, you know, and are Americans too arrogant when they celebrate? It's just, there, there were just so many wonderful elements of it that, um, you know, as much as any of those storylines m- might be frustrating to an individual, the fact that there are all these storylines and that the tabloids in England are going insane is just a sign that, hey, people are people are engaged. More people are engaged. More countries are engaged on, on a whole new level. We uh, talk about me, this with the league. Of, go ahead. Mm-hmm. go I ahead. I can say we talk about this with the league all the time. We need more villains. You know, if Alex Morgan sips tea, a pantomime sipping tea, and all of England hates it, what's wrong with that? What is wrong with that? That just means more people are talking about it and watching and, and following. And it means yeah. more people care, and it means that when they play England again, at some point, it's going to mean that it's going to mean even that much more. Maybe not as much as the World Cup semifinal because they'll probably play in the She Believes Cup, but it'll be something to kind of just carry that rivalry. That just need more of that stuff. Absolutely need more of it. Well, and and last night to see that you know Ellen White scored the first goal for England, which meant that she was in the lead for the Golden Boot. And then Alex Morgan gets the go-ahead goal, and now she's ahead for the Golden Boot. And then Ellen White gets that second goal, but which, of course, gets called called back. And it's like, oh, now she's ahead. It's like, oh, no, she's not. It's like, I, I'd i have to check, but I can't, I can't off the top of my head think of a, a Women's World Cup match where we've had the two leading scorers facing off like that and both scoring in the now, match. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say Morgan scores in the final to go to seven, but let's say White scores a hat-trick in the third-place game. That sounds like an mm-hmm. odd way to win the golden boot, doesn't it? Yeah, you're but you're essentially but, eliminated from the tournament. No, it, it doesn't matter. You're still playing. Um, no, you're right. I mean, it would it's also a match. Yeah. Well, th- think think about it. Like Harry Kane won the golden boot last time, but the bulk of his goals came in their final group stage game, and then he barely scored after. Right, and honestly, you know, more than five you, against Thailand is, I've, I mean, they, they all count. But yeah. It's not anything close to White's or Rapino's goal total. Even Rapino, two from yeah. the spot, one as a free kick. Again, they all count, but they're not maybe all created the same way. Yeah, 
And, and and that's why you always have to kind of take stats in soccer with a grain of salt that it, that it's like, hey, it's the game is really not about stats. So you can say this person had the most goals, but you don't get into, well, it's like, yeah, well, five are against Thailand or so-and-so didn't have any assists. It's like, yeah, well, it's, it's just another way to hand out a trophy, which is why the golden ball in a way is so much more important than the golden boot because it's and who's the best win the player in the tournament. At this point? Who's your golden ball leader? Assuming the I would, US I would, wins. Well, before last night, I would say Megan Rapino was it was in the lead. She didn't play, but I, yeah, I think I think it could really come down to, to to Sunday because you think back to 2015. Would would Carly Lloyd have been your golden boot leader before the final? Yeah, golden ball leader. I mean, she, oh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, she she would yep. she would have been in the conversation, obviously, but she, would she have been the leader? Really has no. been an amazing World Cup for the U.S. in the sense that one game Dal Kemper was great. I thought one game Ertz was great. You know, Morgan had the five goals. Rapinos had some good games. I didn't think her two goal game against Spain was anything special. She stepped up and hit two PKs. Um, you know, that was the Dalkember game. I mean, Nayer's been good. I don't know if you're going to give a goalkeeper the golden uh, the golden ball, but it'll be interesting to see what happens and even how that final plays out. Let's not hand them the trophy just yet either. I think no, no, especially Sweden, are going to be tough matchups. If, uh, if Sweden does make the final, it will be the first time that two teams from the same group reach the final. And, of course... I, I love the idea that it would be USA Sweden just because of all the buildup we had for that, that group stage game and kind of, you know, ha- having that again, that being said, USA Netherlands would be so fascinating because we really haven't played them a lot recently. Uh, so I just, I, I just think that would be a much more intriguing matchup as opposed to a match that we've seen so many times in the last few years. See, I think USA. I think I thought Sweden played the U.S. really tough in that group game, and they did a lot of player rotation. And I actually think the U.S. Sweden rivalry has been overblown a bit, but that this would step it up to a new level if they played in the final. And I think the Netherlands. I don't think the Netherlands would match up as well against the U.S. So while I agree with you in the sense that hey, the Netherlands just had that great run through the Euros. They kind of came into the World Cup under most people's radars, but they have been fine they haven't lost a match yet um weird first half against italy and then dominated the second um obviously if they get to the final they'll have beaten sweden which is no easy task so chance to do a euros world cup double which is a germany special um but i think tactically i'd rather see believe it or not u.s sweden usually i'm the first one that says oh not another sweden game and i did the same thing in the <laughs> world cup because we all knew they were both going to be two and oh and through and it wasn't a big deal but the fact that the a group match would be a rematch of the final speaks to that you know famous cliche depth on the women's side because usually it's only a handful of teams so you're not even getting past uh you know the teams that are seated in the groups that even have a chance to be in the final weird bracket of course as we all know because of the 24 teams it was very you know heavily uh tilted toward the side the U.S. was on. Much, much tougher side. Yeah, and a 2014 tournament always makes it awkward because third-place teams can advance where, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if, not 2023, but maybe 2027, 2031, um, assuming that more than UEFA has 
<laughs> other confederations other than UEFA have invested more in their teams that we could see a 32 team tournament, which to me is the ideal size. I think it's ridiculous that uh, they want to go to 48 for the men's, which is strictly about money and not about the quality of the tournament. And I did see one tweet last week of, some, of someone saying, it's not fair that the men are going to have 48. And we only have 24. I'm like, no, 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 we don't want 48. You want people want but a 32 women's world cup. Are you kidding oh, me? No, that, that was just, be, that, that was just the, the men do it. We don't. So that, that's, that's not a, that doesn't mean it's always yeah. the right way to go with it. Yeah. I don't know that what we're I, ready. What for I love about 32 is that only two teams from each advance, you know, and nobody right. so you're not to the other side other of the bracket. Right. Yeah. That Italy, yeah. the Italy, the Italy, Australia, Brazil group, which, and admittedly it probably would have played out differently, but if only two of those got through and they were all two and one, that would have been some fantastic drama yeah i'll tell you that of that group stage i don't know that we're ready for 32 but i didn't think we were ready for 24 and it went a little bit better than i thought the year that we got there but please just real qualifiers you know i wrote a column about this a few months ago there's an easy way to do it if you you know you do it you don't have to you don't just say hey you got to have real qualifiers next cycle it's a three or four cycle um, evolution. Yeah. And at some point, yeah. if you don't do it, then the men don't do it. That's it. End of story. Yeah. You know, Baby you can, steps. You can, we're, we're, not look, we're not looking for a light switch and suddenly everything's caught up. Right, the U.S. doesn't maybe have to go to Haiti and the Dominican Republic and Jamaica all on separate trips. Maybe you get four teams in Jamaica and you play a Thursday, Sunday. And then in the next cycle, you take the next step. And then the cycle after that, you take the next step. And again, you put in parameters that if you're not doing this for the women, then you can't do it for the men. End of story, easy, done, simple. All right. So we've ranted a lot more than I thought we would, but it's, but it, but it's awesome. Um, so last, last thought on USA France and give me one thought on, on the final. USA France or USA England? <laughs> Sorry, USA England. Yeah, last night. USA England. <laughs> and then, I and then thought, the final. My last thought about USA England is that uh, England are right there knocking on the door and that it's a pivotal time for them because they've now been to the semis of the World Cup four years ago when they lost on an own goal, a match they were probably supposed to lose, but they were kind of in control when that own goal happened in the 90th minute. Then maybe played a little tight in the semis of the Euros when they were the favorites against the Netherlands, who were probably on a collision course with winning that tournament for whatever reason. They were just the team, right team, right time. And now this one, I think, will sting a little bit. But England is right there. They've got the right domestic league set up now because, um, you know, it's not as good a league as NWSL, I don't think, but it's not where Lyon is winning games by 12 goals. You know, it's competitive. Manchester United got promoted into the WSL, so we'll see how much commitment they have to their women's side. Um, But my last thought is England is right, right there. At the same time, we've been saying for 10, 15 years that the world is closing in, and they are, but U.S. is still standing right now. I do think they'll win the final regardless of who they play, but, uh, you know, they got to go out and actually do it. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to rant, and I hope you enjoy tonight's semifinal. Of course, we're recording before 
Netherlands, Sweden, and hopefully, regardless of what happens, we'll have a great third place match Saturday and a really wonderful final on Sunday. There is no such thing as a great third place match. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. Just two matches left of the 52 games of this year's Women's World Cup. This Saturday, England and Sweden face off in the third place game with match coverage beginning 9 a.m. Central and kickoff at 10 a.m. on Fox and Telemundo. And then Sunday, it's USA and Netherlands in the final with pregame on Fox starting at 9 and kickoff at 10. Note that both games stream live on foxsportsgo.com. And if you need any last-minute Women's World Cup gear, USA or Netherlands jerseys, maybe a replica trophy, check out SoccerForAll.com or reach out to my pal Sean with any special requests at Sean at SoccerForAll.com. And that is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and Soccer for All, that's a four in the middle. Customization of jerseys is available too. And we've got another weekend of NWSL action coming up with two Friday games and two Saturday games, none of which overlap with the Women's World Cup matches. All four games stream live on Yahoo Sports, and soon there may may be an announcement about NWSL games getting back on TV. Last, I highly recommend the book, The Making of the Women's World Cup, which was released last week in the U.S. It's written by Equalizer Soccer's Jeff Kasuf and also former Woso Zone podcast host Kieran Tabum. You can find it on Amazon. It's perfect reading for soccer fans. All right, that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to anyone who's tweeted about this or shared it with a friend. And as always, many thanks to Sean for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.